to take another break from our regular series through Philippians on account of the special occasion. What we're about to read in the book of Acts finds these early followers of Jesus at kind of a special, well not kind of a special turning point, a really special turning point. Jesus is about to go back to heaven. And so these 12, these 11 men who have spent the better part of the last three to four years living with and listening to and serving alongside Jesus are about to be without him. But that's okay. Jesus has some encouraging words for them and also a task to set them on. And so uh, as we have this kind of very small, it's not small to us or insignificant to us, but compared to the turning point we're about to read about in Scripture, our turning point is a little bit less significant. We have a new sanctuary, but I think it's worth, as we kind of pause and look back, that we also get, gain some perspective about why it is God builds the church. And by the church, I don't mean the house that we sit in, but the people who sit in it, who dwell in it, who gather in it. And so I'm going to start reading uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, just to give you a sense of the context. But we're going to focus primarily on verses 6 through 11. Luke writes this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let me pause real quick and say that what Luke, the writer of this book, is telling you is that this is part two of a continuing story. Part one, he already wrote, we call it the Gospel of Luke. And in that book, he talked about the life, what Jesus began to do and to teach. So he talked about how the suffering servant came in humility and what he did and how he was crucified and then rose from the dead. And now... He's about to tell us the second part of that story, what Jesus continues to do through his church from heaven, what the ascended risen king at the right hand of the throne of God continues to do by the power of his spirit through his people. Let's read verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. Would you give divine and supernatural light? Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word? And may we be forever transformed and changed as we consider it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Perspective really matters. If you were to come upon two of your friends, one of whom was cowering on the ground and the other was holding a baseball bat over them, you would certainly have a perspective on what was going on. You might imagine that one friend was beating the other with a baseball bat. Unless, right before you'd gotten there, there was a third person who had actually been attacking the one friend and your other with the baseball bat had come in in his defense. Perspective matters because what you're going to do next matters on what you actually know, on the truth you actually know. And so I read that passage to us this morning so that we would have some perspective on who it is we are to be and what it is we are to do even as our house looks very different and even as many things have changed Yet many things will stay the same. And the main point is this, that by God's grace, we will continue to be a community of spirit-powered, Christ-exalting witnesses, seeking to reach the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the more things change, the more they stay the same. Our mission, which comes from the scriptures, is... The same. And we will keep going in it. Jesus gives some pretty precious promises in this passage. I'm going to focus on them and kind of do it out of order. The first one we're going to talk about is the end. And then in the middle we're going to talk about the drive. And then finally we're going to talk about the means. How God accomplishes this glorious goal. So what is the end? What is the purpose? What is the goal? Jesus, you can imagine kind of the condition that these men were in. Jesus had been meeting with them for about 40 days. But we should add to that that this same Jesus, they had watched him die. They had lived about three years with him. And he had warned them what was going to happen. And yet they really didn't hear him. And so they watched him shamed. They watched him tried. They watched him beaten. They watched him crucified. And they watched him die. And they watched him buried, their friend, their master, their teacher. And then, after they had given up hope, they, were, they, had, they had ready to go back to a normal life without Jesus, lo and behold, he got out of the grave and changed everything. And for 40 days now, Jesus has been appearing to these, his first witnesses, his first disciples, and Talking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know what you would want to talk to Jesus about or really anybody who came back from the dead. I'm not sure what you would think your conversation ought to look like. But Jesus is talking to them about his kingdom, which is kind of strange to us and kind of weird. What exactly what exactly is the kingdom of God? And the short answer is it is God's rule over everything that he has made. And that's actually how it is supposed to be, according to the Bible. In fact, 
That's what it was supposed to be like in Genesis 1, right? God told his first creatures, Adam and Eve, what did he tell them to do? He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God's plan for creation was that his glory would fill this entire globe. That these people whom he had made, his image, would multiply and would spread. And they would take his image and bear it everywhere. But that didn't happen. Rather than live into that calling, our first parents lived into themselves. And they pursued their own glory rather than the glory of their maker. And as a result, they broke the world. And rather than grace and glory and salvation echoing throughout the halls of creation, rebellion and strife and discord did. And that has been the story of human history. But in these 40 days, Jesus begins to tell his friends something different is about to happen. Something new is about to happen. It will not be the same. I am reversing the course of history. The kingdom of God has come and will come. Those are the conversations that they've been having. And so Jesus gathers them together one last time on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And they can tell that their time with him is coming to an end. And so they ask, all of them start asking, Jesus, is it now? Will you now restore the kingdom of God to Israel? Are you going to do it now, right now? Right? You can, you can hear, I can hear my children. And so when are we going to do this stuff you've been talking about? Like... I have one child who, every night when we go to bed, I think it's a delaying tactic, but he does it all the same, right? And he says, what's the plan for tomorrow? What are we going to do right now? What about right now? Right? The disciples want to know, when is all this going to happen? Are are we going to make this happen? When are you going to make this happen? What are they wanting to know? Well, it's possible that they misunderstand the idea of kingdom. And that's how many people have interpreted the story. That, that these first disciples were, had a very nationalistic misunderstanding of the kingdom. That really when Jesus was talking about the kingdom, he's talking about Israel. And he's talking about returning to the glory days of David. After all, the prophets had promised something like that would happen. That, that God was going to restore the tent Right. Of David that had fallen, that he was going to make Israel great again. And so it's possible that that's what they're asking when they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That they had a very narrow view. What they're basically saying is, Jesus, are you right now going to make Israel great again? And Jesus corrects if that's if that's what they're thinking Jesus corrects their misunderstanding. It's also possible that they're just looking for clarity. After all, Isaiah had said that when the Messiah came, he was going to restore Israel. He was going to rescue Israel. And when he rescued Israel, he was going to bring in all the nations as well. That he was going to be a light to the nations. And so it's possible that they're just asking that. 
They're not misguided in their expectations so much as they're just wanting to know when it's going to happen. Either way, Jesus doesn't answer them directly. Now, just as a side note, many, many people have said, and I, I think I understand the intent with which it's said, you know, a lot of people will say, man, wouldn't it have been great to walk on the earth when Jesus was here physically and to talk with him and to have conversation with him? Now, I'm a little more sarcastic, you know, in my outlook on life, but I'm like, really? Like, you want, have you ever seen the way Jesus answers questions? You want to have a conversation with him? He never answered a question directly. Are you sure you'd want to keep talking with him? So, but I get it. I understand. Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He doesn't give them, oh, well, here's when it's going to happen. Because he understands that their vision is in the wrong place. They're looking backward instead of forward. And so Jesus answers them by saying, it's not about the time, fellas. In fact, the time is really out of your control. And don't we do that as well? Aren't we like these first disciples that we we really want to know things that are beyond our control? And in fact, we tend to so focus on things that are beyond our control that we usually ignore the responsibilities that we have. And so Jesus realigns their focus. He says, it's not for you to know times and seasons. That's That's the Father's authority. That's what the Father is handling. You have another task in the meantime. Now is not the time to worry about the time. Now is the time to be witnesses. And so, Jesus redirects their focus with a vision of the future. He says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria... And to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus actually is saying, yes, the kingdom will be restored, but don't worry about the time. The kingdom first has to spread over the entire earth. And so the goal, the end, is that God's glory would fill the entire creation, just as it was meant to at the very beginning. So Isaiah's vision will come true. The ends of the earth will see the light of the Savior. People who've never heard of the God of the Bible will come to believe in Him. And you know what? We are the first fruits of that promise. The fact that that we are gathered, a group of people who know God and want to know Him, the fact that we are gathered in Clanton, Alabama, is proof positive that Jesus' promise to these Galilean fishermen came true. We are here because of this promise made over 2,000 years ago to a group of fishermen standing on a mountain in Palestine. And our story is not the only story like that. We're everywhere. Christianity is the only non-ethnic Religion. When you look at the other major world religions and even the minor ones, they all tend to be geographically located or deal with one particular culture or group of cultures. But not Christianity. Indeed, Christianity is represented on almost every continent, maybe every continent, by every kind of people, with every kind of language. But we're not done yet. 
There are still languages, there are still tongues who can't speak, who don't speak the name of Jesus. There are still cultures that don't have a copy of his story. They don't have the word. There are still people at the ends of the earth, in the far reaches of our country, and at the end of our very streets who do not yet know the name of Jesus. And so while the story continues, and while the movement has continued to gain traction, there is still room left. There are still tribes and tongues and nations that need to worship Jesus. And so the work continues. And so my hope for Grace Fellowship is that we would share... In this global vision. That we would hear Jesus' promise to these first disciples and that we would not stop. That we would not give up. That we would realize that there, there is still yet a finish line. There is still yet ears to hear before Jesus parts the clouds and returns the way that he went. There is still... Work to do, and that we would share in that global vision, that we would continue to share in that global vision. How does that happen? How does that come to pass? Well, Jesus says, here's the drive. He says, You will you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so the power that makes this goal, this end possible is nothing less than God himself. It's the Holy Spirit. And so if the disciples were thinking of a political kingdom or a military kingdom, if they were thinking that Jesus had finally come to overthrow Caesar and displace the Romans and take the throne of David, Jesus corrects them. It's not the power of governments. It's not the power of armies. It's not the power of philosophy It's the power of God himself. That word power is where we get our word dynamite from. And if that's true, if Jesus has to correct them, then we're in good company because we're like them. We usually have our own ideas about how some things ought to happen. And if you're a Christian, usually we tend to think that we're going to do God's work in our own way. We trust many other powers other than the power of the Holy Spirit. We look in the wrong direction. And so, if you look at the world and you think, man, things have got to change, things are awful, the first power we usually trust is the power of politics. We think that if the world is going to get better, if my life is going to get better, if our country is going to get better, then we need to make good laws and have good leaders. Now, that's true. Good laws and good leaders are important. Christians involved in government are important. But is that the power that will drive social change? Is that the power that changes morals? Is that the power that transforms the human heart? And the answer is no. The only power that does that is the Holy Spirit. And so while politics is important... Politics will not bring the kingdom. We trust the power of superior reasoning. We think, if I can just make my case, 
then I'll change people's minds. If I just have an opportunity to gain lots of wisdom and state my wisdom before others, then that will change the way people feel and the way people think. And again, there's some truth in that. We are called by the Bible to gain wisdom, to learn, right? Christianity does change the way that we think. It does does change our worldview and our philosophy. But that is not the power that drives the mission. Ultimately, our words fall on deaf ears, no matter how wise and well thought out they are, if Holy Spirit is not at work. We trust the power of the spectacular. This is actually true for my generation probably and and younger. The age of reasoning seems to be passing, seems to be fading in favor of the age of experience. What's needed to change people is, is something dramatic and explosive. This powerful, emotional wow. But it's interesting that in the book of Acts, Every time that the power of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, it's not mentioned in relation to miracles, though those are there and important, or signs and wonders. In fact, the miraculous gets less and less common as you go through the book. But, when the power of the Holy Spirit is talked about almost every time, what it's driving someone to do is talk. Teach, preach, tell the good news about Jesus. And so the world is won, not by politics, not by strength of arms, not by superior philosophy, and not by good looks. The world is won with a word. And that word is Jesus. And that is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. We are driven by the Holy Spirit to talk about Jesus. And so the way enemies fall, the way that the enemies of God's kingdom fall, and the way that many of them become a part of that kingdom themselves, is not through the force of of arms or rhetoric, but through the foolish-sounding word of God's grace. When the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in the speaker and in the hearer. And so my hope for Grace Fellowship is that not only we would have a global vision, but that we would earnestly pray for the Spirit to revive us and to use us and spur us on. More than ever, we need the Holy Spirit's power to speak the word. So that leaves us with the means. What is it that Jesus uses to keep doing his work? What is it that Jesus uses to conquer all the other kingdoms in the world and bring them into submission to his kingdom? Us. Jesus uses witnesses. So if there was ever a reason for discouragement, there it is right there. Us. We're it. Right? We're the, we're the best and brightest. We're, we're what he's got. 
In his letter to the Christians in Rome, that, by the way, was not an insult to you, it was primarily about me. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul says this, he says in Romans 10.13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How does the word get out about Jesus? Normal, everyday people talking about Jesus. Right, one of the... uh, Illustrate it this way. One of the beauties of the Internet, I think it's one of the beauties of the Internet and social media, I'll let, I'll let you decide, is that when you want to shop for something or when you want to learn something, you, can, you, have, you have more reviews than you could possibly ever read, right? Like when, you, when I, I'm a researcher, I'm a consumer reports guy, before I buy something, even if it's only like a $30 printer, I got to know, is this like the best possible printer I could ever own and use, right? So... Um, after I've read Consumer Reports, before I buy some Amazon, right, I start reading the reviews at the bottom. I read the comments that people leave because I need a witness. I need somebody to tell me whether it's good or not good. And the most useless comments, like there's the guy who, who, who leaves, like who, who puts five stars on it and says, hey, we just got it. Open up the box and it looks great. <laughs> Haven't plugged it in, haven't put the batteries in, but man, it looks great in the box. Brother, I'm going to need you to use it before you rate it, okay? And then there's the other person who rates it like one star and says, this is not what I ordered. Again, I think you missed the point. That's not really what we're rating here. Um, I'm sorry your experience was a bad one, but you're not really a witness. You don't really know what you're talking about. And so the first part of being a witness, dare we say, the main part of being a witness is knowing what you're talking about. And in this case, knowing who you're talking about. Have you met Jesus? Are you a witness? Now, listen, this was really easy for the first these first twelve. Right. These first actually there were more than than just the uh, the 11 apostles. There were also a group that met with them. Right. They had all met Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. And so we could say, well, it's easy for them. They had they had actually witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. I haven't done that. But it worked, didn't it? I mean, you're here, aren't you? What Jesus says to them in this passage is that their witness their first-hand witness will have effect. That as they spread out, and they will spread out, most of the Roman world by 200 A.D. had heard about Jesus. I mean, good grief, it was the official religion by 300. So, somebody got to work, right? And it was just not, not formal missionaries, well-trained, right? It wasn't like It wasn't like the special ops people, okay? It was normal, everyday people who encountered Jesus, came to know him, and then talked with their neighbors about him. That's how the church spreads. 
That's how it has spread. It's how it will continue to spread. Yes, we need those people who have a special call to go to foreign countries. But maybe that's you. Well, I'm not really trained for that. Are you sure? Bear witness, right? Well, but I don't, I'm not ready for every objection. That's okay. Bear witness. I don't know my Bible well enough. Okay, keep reading the Bible. But in the meantime, if you know Jesus, bear witness to what you know. Testify. That's what witnesses do. Which leads me to the second point about witnesses. About Christian witness in particular. Christianity needs a living Jesus. And what do I mean by that? I mean that Christianity is not primarily about the teachings and philosophies of Jesus. For instance, Islam does not need Muhammad. All it needs is to be based on his teaching, on his ideas. That's, the, that's, that's what it does. Buddhism doesn't need a real Buddha. In fact, there's some doubt as to whether or not he was real. It just needs the teaching and philosophies. But Christianity is different. Christianity is not a religion primarily about Jesus' teachings. Christianity is about Christ himself. When we bear witness to Jesus, we're bearing witness to a real person, not to a set of ideas. We're bearing witness to the good news about what he did for us and not simply the good advice that he might have for us. There's a difference. Because we're not telling people to straighten up and to fall in line with this particular code. What we're inviting people to is to know Christ himself, the real living person who reigns in heaven whose Holy Spirit actually comes into people and transforms them from the inside out. And so, yes, Christianity is a transformed life. People do live differently. Their life has changed. Christianity changes the way that you think. It is a different philosophy. It is a different way of looking at the world than Maybe what you used to have. But that is not its root. That is not its firm foundation. It's not a set of beliefs, ideas, or teachings, though those are there. It is at root a person. And our calling, right here, starting on this mountain and extending to the ends of the earth, is to introduce people to Jesus. That's what it means to bear witness. And so there are many good causes in the world, many many things that good people should promote and defend. Social justice matters because God is a God of justice. Caring for the poor, caring for the most vulnerable, James defines that as true religion, so that's necessary and good. But the heart is introducing people to Jesus. The core of Christianity is Christ himself. You know, this house is, uh, is just a waypoint. It's just a, it's just a roadside inn. 
where sin-sick, weary sinners can come and find rest and be made into saints. And those saints are then built up and continue this gospel gossip until the message, until the good news about Jesus reaches all the way to the ends of the earth. And we gather and witness to that king who will one day part the clouds and return. And so I would ask you this question from the old Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And if you can answer that question correctly, then you understand what it means to know Christ and to be his witness. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid. For all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. My heart for grace fellowship, my hope for grace fellowship, is that we would know Jesus like that. That he would be the sum and substance of our Christianity. And that we would bear his witness to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we don't feel it, but we know it to be true. We are but a blip on the radar. And yet, Lord, you fill that blip with great significance because you say that we are your image bearers. We are creatures of glory. And if we know you, one day... We will share in the splendid glory of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Lord, would you use us, your people, in this place to fill the earth, to subdue it. To subdue it not with our muscles, not with our brains, but with the foolish word of good news that there is a God who rescues sinners and saves them all by His grace. May we live it and love it and talk about it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.